Welcome to the Above and Beyond Recovery Podcast, where we explore recovery and its relationship to faith, family, work, community, and health. Hi, I'm Amber Didden, today's host of the Above and Beyond Recovery Podcast. Today, our guest is Michael Fanjoy. He's our Vice President of Quality and Compliance at Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge. This is a part two of a conversation that we had about the history of treatment. It's absolutely fascinating. There's a lot for us to talk about. So let's get back into it. So one of the things that I've also been curious about, our organization is celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. So we we were established here at this location in 1962, um, but Teen Challenge was established in the late 50s. 1958. 1958. So I'm just curious, like, what was happening in the field at the time? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we don't have to go into all of David Wilkerson's story, but... How do you think that informed what he was trying to do in New York? Sure. Well, I think, again, if we look at the cyclical fashion of history, Mm -hmm. right? So we had the early 1900s, and then it kind of like Mm -hmm. seemed like it blew up, and then the prohibition, and then it kind of deflated. Well, now this was kind of the environment was becoming more conducive at this time again for treatment. Mm -hmm. And so you, but you really didn't have a whole lot because those treatment. Most of those other treatment centers closed. The Minnesota model was just starting. And so uh, in 1956, uh, American Association declared alcoholism a disease. So you just mentioned that in 19, did you say 1958, alcoholism was identified as a disease? 56. 1956. Mm-hmm. So that was By the so, American Medical Association. That was very early. I, I mean, in my thinking, I feel like that disease model is kind of more modern than 19... 19- mm-hmm. And a lot of people would say that. Right. So it's kind of fascinating that it happened so early. Is Mm -hmm. it the same for um, other substances, drug abuse? I believe it was just alcoholism at this time. Okay. The disease concept of alcoholism. uh, E.M. Jelinek, he created a lot of documentations and charts of what the progression of alcoholism Mm -hmm. looked like. And we still use that today in counseling. But it wasn't officially declared about all substance use to be the disease. But Mm -hmm. underlying in treatment circles, it it was connected. Right always connected that alcohol was a drug mm-hmm. and you know it's similar to a lot of other drugs because at least the way that uh, it deteriorates a person right. is very much the right. same. Okay, so 1956 the disease model of addiction kind of is birthed and then it's not long after that that David Wilkerson goes to New York. So tell me mm-hmm. more about that story. So in 1958 uh, Teen Challenge, the organization we work for, a faith-based drug and alcohol recovery program was founded led by uh, the incredible faith of David Wilkerson. And this excerpt is taken off of the TCUSA website. It's right there on the, to talk about the history of uh, David Wilkerson. And so David Wilkerson made seemingly a bizarre step uh, from his country pulpit. He actually is from Pennsylvania. And in 1958, went to the streets of New York City where, uh, where a murder trial of seven teenage boys. Society kind of was like, uh, again... You know, looking at these as outcast, mm-hmm. as low life type of thing, and and really addiction was kind of that way too. Even though it was starting, the the environment was starting to change to be more conducive of wanting to provide help. Society still kind of wasn't along. Mm-hmm. You know, still was like the under underlying of society. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, David Wilkerson felt a, a very strong call of God, be, probably because of that, because these people were looked at so poorly by society. Mm-hmm and wanting to reach out and help them. And so he went out there 
tried to help the members that were on trial, wasn't able to help them on trial, but through that, he was able to get to the gang members in the streets mm -hmm. in New York and founded an organization now um, that has um, over 200 locations in the United States and 1,000 worldwide wow. for faith-based uh, drug and alcohol treatment programs. Mm -hmm. So, Now, from what I know of David Wilkerson's model, is that he was taking teenagers, they were teens when he started working with them, and then young adults, um, and eventually took them out of the city, brought them to rural Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and to kind of get them into a new environment, sure. started teaching them life skills, mm -hmm. gave them that discipleship that they needed in their life. Um, and there was some counseling and sort of things like that involved. But what other kind of things were going into the model at the time that helped benefit people that were struggling? I think also... The, the it was long term so the mm -hmm. Minnesota model was about 30 days and that was kind of the model that was flourishing although the Salvation Army had a little bit of a longer model mm -hmm. also at that time and there was therapeutic communities that were like year long models but this was a little different than the traditional therapeutic model, communities because it was really centered around biblical principles and things like forgiveness and compassion and love and things that we see in the Bible mm -hmm. so that's key to, to the component but then the phases like you mentioned there was a phase where they came off the street and then kind of like, you know, got their rough edges, you know, mm -hmm. uh, smoothed off a little bit. And then they would go into deeper biblical studies when they were able to, you know, kind of the progression of a person when they're, they're able to uh, learn a little bit more, kind of come out of that addiction a little bit. And then almost like you, you want to learn more at that time too. So the training centers were kind of that part of that process. And it was a year-long process too, which helps a person a lot. I mean, research shows that at least six months, um, a lot of that change doesn't happen before that period of time. And then after a year, you really see the drop off of other recidivism and stuff like that. So 12, 12 months is a really good time frame for that. Mm -hmm. And to be exposed by uh, healthy ideology and understandings that the biblical principles provide uh, help people so much at that time. And, you know, the success rate, I don't know if you know, but the success rate uh, for Teen Challenge is about 70, in the 70% rate. So even even today, for a person who completes a year-long mm -hmm. program um, done by independent outside studies. So 70s and 80s, anything you got there through the 90s? So my research kind of drops off after mm -hmm. that. I didn't expect to find so much research right. for this and really just kind of jumped into the 90s when SAMHSA was founded. Okay. Uh, so 1992, SAM Congress established Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is SAMHSA. Mm -hmm. and, uh, in 19 and this again was in 1992 to make substance use and mental disorder information services uh, research more accessible. And that's what SAMHSA, now SAMHSA is kind of like the gold standard for research. Mm -hmm. So if you want to find uh, any cutting edge research and a lot of this information you can actually get from SAMHSA websites, you can get uh, manuals on how to provide treatment, how to set up treatment centers, mm -hmm. how to provide specific forms of treatment like opiate treatment programs, cognitive behavioral. Um, it's, they have publications for that mm -hmm. uh, and they're all free. So it's a great, great resource that the government set up. I use it quite often. Was SAMHSA kind of a um, response or a, a support to like the war on drugs we heard about kind of in that era? Yes, exactly. Did I did research there. Do you still have your t-shirt? I've lost mine a long time <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, for school, right? I remember them coming in, yep. in school and stuff like that. And so, 
Yeah, DARE back in the early 90s, that was a big program uh, from the government that tried to help thwart some of these. It, you know, the success is questionable, uh, depending on how you look at it. So, But there were a lot of other governmental initiatives. Um, even recently, there's a governmental initiative on opiate, uh, the opiate disorder, opiate crisis. It was declared a crisis, and there's lots of funds that have been able to kind of go out to different programs to help with that. And so different types of opiate treatment programs have kind of sprung up because of those responses. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, now, you know, we're coming out of, or kind of still in the COVID area, mm -hmm. or coming out of COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, COVID kind of took the focus of that. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see now, um, because unfortunately, uh, opiate abuse and overdoses and overdose deaths are on the rise, uh, about 30% each year, year over year over the past couple of years. And so significant number, um, we still need to do a lot for mm -hmm. that. So when do we see kind of modern day MAT start to take shape? I would say with methadone, and it was probably around Vietnam War era. Okay. And so... A lot of uh, people coming out of that, they, they started to see, again, it was a veteran-based type of program mm -hmm. with methadone and that they needed something significantly to help our veterans with that. And so they developed that thing in the 80s, I would say, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit earlier than that. And then methadone was the pretty much the, the main uh, for opiate use. There actually is alcohol medication-assisted treatment. Uh, and abuse was a substance that they originally used, mm -hmm. and that was to kind of help block the effects of alcohol. And then surprisingly enough, Vivitrol took antibuses place and it really originally started with alcohol. Really? Yeah, and so it's a blocker. Mm -hmm. It What it does is it attaches to receptor sites in the brain and so it holds itself to those receptor sites so when you drink, the alcohol molecules can't attach to the certain places mm -hmm. in the brain and so you really do not feel the effects of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, they found out that Vivadrol kind of does the same with the opiate receptor sites in the brain, the MU receptor sites, which are the opiate receptor. It attaches itself to those as mm -hmm. well um, and, and also is able to kind of block that mm -hmm. psychotropic effect with opiates as well. So now it's a, it's a good uh, form of MAT. And so now basically there are three forms of MAT. Okay. There's methadone, um, there's buprenorphine, mm -hmm. and then there's Vivadrol or now, now oral or uh, injectable naltrexone. How would you describe the balance currently in the field between MAT and traditional like counseling therapy? Do you feel like it's weighted either side, either way, if you could kind of look at the field as a whole? I know it's different in different programs in different areas, mm -hmm. but what would you say that balance looks like right now? I would say probably because of the response, uh, MAT is being used more often. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of people that can just uh, be be placed on maintenance, mm -hmm. and I'm finding that they're not necessarily going to counseling on top of that. And so um, is it effective? You know, I think people are, are definitely surviving, um, which is a, a very good thing. And so w only time will tell to see how effective it is in the long term, mm -hmm. you know. I believe that, I mean, it's, and it's kind of basically two forms of treatment modalities that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. One is abstinence-based treatment, and the other one's harm reduction. There's two kind of models that are out there. Yeah. And abstinence, they don't, it's like oil and water. They don't really, they're, they're on How opposite they, sides, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Abstinence-based, mostly the, the purist, right, mm -hmm. would not see MAT as uh, at least the two forms of MAT. Even some would say even the three forms. But uh, buprenorphine and methadone, they would not say that that would 
a person would not be abstinent if they were on that, mm -hmm. you know. Some do. Some believe that, okay, you know, the, as long as they're not using any other type of substance, that that's the abstinence, mm -hmm. right? But but then you have the harm reduction, which MET kind of falls more in that. And that's more of a blended model, too, which you, you use behavioral counseling along with the medication-assisted treatment uh, to kind of support each other through the process to help a person relearn how to live in a healthy manner. And then ideally, I think for most people, although some uh, some damage can be done beyond repair, you know, in, in the brain. Uh, and that's the theory that's going on out there with the reason why people may need to be on this for a very, very long time. Um, but ideally, in most cases, it, I think it should be time limited, at least my own personal opinion, where counseling can help a person uh, and, and a brain. And we know that psychotherapies help the brain rewire itself mm -hmm. just as well as uh, pharmacology mm -hmm. and medication, too. We've learned that's plenty of research out there mm -hmm. that shows that over a period of time, our behavior and changing our behavior can actually rewire our brain. Mm -hmm. And so I think ideally that's what we want to see because that's what we see the best results for those in society. Mm -hmm. you know, because still, even on MAT, you're still limited to certain things. You, transportation uh, employment mm -hmm. can be very limited mm -hmm. if you're on MAT. Um, certain types of uh, construction jobs. There's, there's lots of uh, employment uh, restrictions out there for those that are on MAT. So to be an effective member of society, you really kind of need to, I mean, you're going to be limited if you're on that for a very long time. Now, again, is that better than death? Of course. So where do you see the field going? Are there any innovations on the horizon that you see people trying new things and testing things out. And I, one of the things that was really interesting to me in this conversation was, like you said, the cycle and how we've kind of like revisited some of these treatment modalities and kind of gone back to or tried to reinvent some of the mm -hmm. MAT. Like sure. we're not bloodletting anymore. That's right. wonderful. Um, so where do you see the field going moving forward? What kind of new things are kind of shadows of old things? Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like, you think? So there's a couple of different things that are, are kind of the focus of the treatment field right now. Um, for behavioral therapies, uh, trauma is really a big mm -hmm. focus right mm -hmm. now. We're starting to really become more understanding about how trauma is formed in the brain. We're starting to learn more about the brain and things like that and what we can do. And so through that, uh, the treatment uh, therapies and interventions are being kind of influenced by that, I would say. And so EMDR, DBT. What's EMDR? It has to do with uh, the way that you are able to move your eyes and focus on those types of movements. There's there's a, another one called thought field therapy. I actually uh -huh. know a little bit more about that, less popular. But it has to do with tapping, which is similar to I've what's happening in the on brain. I've heard about this on TikTok. Yeah, it's, it's neat. It's neat. It's funny that I, again, know more about that than I can't recall in EMDR. Uh, my wife, it's something my wife is really studying, uh -huh. is thought field therapy. And she's used it a number of times in group therapy and has had great success with it. But Does it have something to do with like that rewiring process? It does, okay. yep. There's pressure points, uh -huh. actually, that you have on your body. And so when a traumatic um, thought comes in, you tap on those pressure points. Uh -huh. And it starts to rewire your brain to not be so hyper-focused on that traumatic thought. Mm -hmm. It breaks, it's, thought, it's a thought-breaking technique. Yeah. And so there's there's certain, I think on your wrist somewhere there's mm -hmm. a tapping. Uh, there's one like on your forehead too. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's funny, I've, I've had other clinicians walk in on one of my wife's groups when all of them, all the <laughs> ladies were tapping on their foreheads and they're like, okay, and they walk back yeah, out. out. Yep. But it does work, it yeah. works. It breaks those thoughts, those uh, you know thought uh, 
um, when, when a person is really hyper-focused on that thought, and then it can it enables them to be able to do something with that after that because it's kind of freeze when they get to that point. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is our capability for studying biofeedback mm -hmm. and studying more about what's going on in the body on a day-to-day. -day. Like there are treatment facilities that now are giving patients wearable tech that they can wear throughout the day. Yes. And start to monitor, mm -hmm. you know, like what's going on in their therapy sessions, what's going on when they're using MAT, like, sure. and using that data Absolutely. to then inform mm -hmm. the treatment. So I think that's something that's going to be really interesting yeah. to see in the future is how our wearable tech, how the tech that's all around us is going to help us mm -hmm. monitor and adjust treatment kind of in real time. Mm -hmm. And they're even starting, there's a new uh, therapy out there too, where they're starting to have uh, electrodes attached and they wear a device and throughout the day it uh, periodically gives them you know shocks light shocks in their brain and it's supposed to help with withdrawal mm -hmm. and so it's an interesting so thing we're back happening. to like electroshock therapy yeah, right. and yeah I know I was, yeah. I was hearing about it I'm like that's exactly what <laughs> this is haven't we been here before yeah just <laughs> yeah. a little bit more controlled right, right, right. you know a little bit more about it so yeah I was thinking like that with the MAT, there is uh, also time released. So uh, Sublocade mm -hmm. is a, is kind of big right now, which is can be very helpful. It's it's a lot less likely to be diverted, mm -hmm. and so therefore it kind of brings that ability for a person to be able to do that down. It helps them focus more on their treatment and mm -hmm. things like that. So. That can be a really good form of buprenorphine. And diversion, just for people that might not know, is when somebody is given a medication and then doesn't take that medication appropriately and might use it later or give it to somebody else. Am exactly. I right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. And that goes back to the behaviors, mm -hmm. you know, again, to the kind of the dysfunctional behaviors that a person learns when they're in addiction. And part of it is survival and mm -hmm. things like that. But those don't break very easily, even yeah. with it's, there's a process, a transition yeah. process. So. so I think one of the things that I'm stuck with the most is that we do see addiction increasing in our communities. We see more and more people mm -hmm. struggling with it. But when you look at how far we've come as a society in treatment, there's so much hope that not only will these modalities continue to improve, they'll continue to become more accessible and we'll start to see people um, find even more wholeness and, and health. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This no has problem. been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> Before we close the show, we like to talk about the habits that we're making this week that are helping us find wholeness in our lives. Michael, what's your wholeness habit of the week? My wholeness habit is, um, well, I have about six weeks until I will be running on a half marathon, but it's an ultra half marathon. So it is, uh, it's called the World's End Fall Classic, and it's up at World's End State Park. And it's the three point uh, thirteen point two miles and over three thousand vertical. So I did it last year. It was a very difficult race. Uh, about six weeks. My wife is doing it with me as well, and also my brother-in-law. And we are in training mode. So I'm trying to I'm behind on my training a little bit. Uh, so I'm trying to run four miles twice a day at least five days for the next five weeks, six weeks. So. Well, Godspeed to you. That Thank sounds you. like absolute torture, uh, and I would never, but I'm I'm happy for we'll you, see. Michael. Uh, well, my wholeness habit of the week is I've been trying to practice yoga, actually, and I was a little bit weirded out about some of the spiritual elements of that, mm -hmm. but I found a studio that's, like, not 
spiritual really at all. And so I can kind of go and meditate on the Lord during my yoga practice. Um, and it is week to week, but I just went in and booked a bunch of weeks back to back and just got them on my calendar and I'm really enjoying it. So I'm not running a marathon, but I am getting a little bit of exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And thanks to you for joining us on the podcast and tuning in. Uh, please don't forget to leave us a comment or email us with any questions you may have at abovebeyond@paatc.org. Again, that's abovebeyond@paatc.org. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us. The Above and Beyond Recovery Podcast is a production of Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge. If you or a loved one needs help with addiction, call us now at 844-888-8085 or find us online at paatc.org. That information is also in our show notes. Join us next time as we continue the conversation.